0: I have a text, Psalm 85, verse 6. Psalm 85, verse 6. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Now, please don't moan. I want you to imagine that it's the day before the state opening of Parliament. And the Prime Minister of the day is in his study in number 10, Downing Street, and what he's doing is he's preparing the speech that he will, be, he will give, opening the debate that follows on that speech, and he's going to do that the following afternoon to the House of Commons, and what does he have in front of him to help him in his preparation? Is it a copy of his party's political manifesto? Is it the latest economic indicators from the treasury is it perhaps the latest reports from a variety of different government governmental think tanks or is it the findings and submissions from organisations representing a whole number of different groups of people and interests the CBI TUC etc or is it letters addressed to him from members of the public about this that and the other well no it's none of these what this particular prime minister has in front of him is a Bible. Can you imagine that today? This prime minister has a Bible. And he's decided to base his speech to the House of Commons on that. Can you imagine today? <laughs> In fact, he wants to speak to the gathered MPs and to the nation from the book of Psalms. And in particular, he wants to speak speak from Psalm 85. And as he looks through the psalm, his eyes alight. On verse 6, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? And he writes in his notes, because this is what he's going to say, More than anything else, this is what our country needs. Spiritual revival. Can you say amen? (laughs) Can you imagine what it would be like if that actually happened this week? But once, it did. On the 16th of September, 1656, Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England... Was in his study in whitehall preparing the speech he was to give the following day at the opening of the second Protectoral parliament in front of him was his bible and it was open at psalm 85 and the more he read through the psalm the more he became persuaded that this is what the gathered mps needed to hear and as you know cromwell loved the psalms and he was forever quoting from them. And in the words of Antonia Fraser, I hope you've read this book, that mammoth and celebrated work of Cromwell, our chief of men, by the way, she was a Roman Catholic. In that book, he says he was forever bringing them into play like heavy guns. Cromwell stood up in Parliament the following day and began his speech by saying, Yesterday, I did read a psalm, which truly may not unbecome both me to tell you and you to observe. It is the 85th psalm. It is very instructive and significant. And though I do do but a little touch upon it, I desire your perusal and pleasure. And what he then did was to expound the psalm, outlining his vision for an England where God's righteousness might reign. Listen to, listen to Psalm 85, 10 to 13. This is his picture, you see, of the, of the land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord will give what is good And our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our footpath. And and as he spoke, he did this urging the parliament. And he said again and again, look up to God. Look up to God. Can you imagine a prime minister saying that today? Says here is our only hope. Look up to God, pray for a spiritual revival. And sadly, as we look at the nation that is spiritually and morally bankrupt, is not this the cry, the crying need? And even before thinking about the nation, what about the church? Clearly, the church in Wales is in a desperate state. The EMW survey said that there are fewer people attending church in Wales than any of the other countries which make up Britain. And so in the light of these facts, in in the light of the situation, isn't this what we need to be praying for? Praying for in the church and for the church, more than anything else and verse 6 is so applicable isn't it will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you so so what's the psalm what what is the psalmist doing in this psalm he's doing at least three things first of all he is looking back and pondering the goodness of god secondly he's looking up and seeking the presence of god and thirdly He's looking forward and anticipating the harvest of God. So let's begin by, by thinking about he's looking back and pondering the goodness of God. And that's what the opening of the psalm is about. He's looking back. He's looking back to a day when, when the people of God had experienced the goodness and the mercy of God. When he came amongst the people... Um, to restore, the, he says, the, the fortunes of Jacob. Verse 1, Lord, you have been favourable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. C.H. Spurgeon's introduction to the psalm says, this is the prayer of a patriot for his afflicted country, in which he pleads the Lord's former mercies and by faith foresees brighter days. Now when, when you think about these particular mercies, there are a number of questions that we need to ask. First of all, is, first of all is, the first is this: When did the Lord come? That is, at what time did the Lord come down amongst His people in, in restoring goodness and mercy? And I think to answer that question, we, we need to put the psalm into some sort of context. And i don't think we can be absolutely clear but the setting is probably in jerusalem and it's not long after the exiles had returned from their 70 years captivity in babylon and even if this is not the case we can nevertheless nevertheless say that in these particular days following the activity, acti- captivity we have the perfect illustration of the kind of desolation. And discouraging situation out of which the psalm originally arose and so you remember the situation was following the captivity in 538 bc the first exiles returned to jerusalem and and immediately the the foundations of a new temple were, were laid and the temple was completed sometime later between 520 and 515 bc but then this work Uh, which had begun with such with with such excitement and enthusiasm the work of rebuilding the whole city and its protecting walls ground to a halt it was now 445 bc some 93 years after the the return to the city of that first group of exiles and what was the news that was brought to far off susa they were the residence of the Persian king, we are told in Nehemiah, and I won't read all the verses, but, but the report was this, that the people of God were dispirited, and the city of God was in ruins. Now that was the report given to Nehemiah. What was the reaction which that produced in Nehemiah? Isn't it Nehemiah 1, 4a? So it was, When I heard these words that I wept and mourned for many days. Now if you're wondering how revival begins, then this would have to be the answer. It begins with tears. It begins with weeping. For what? Well, clearly, It's for the lost souls of men and women. Of course it's that, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's for the lost glory of God. And that's why Nehemiah wept as he did. And Nehemiah speaks in his prayer about Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that was was lying in ruins, he says, as a dwelling for God's name. In other words, it was in Jerusalem that God gave a name for himself. And the point is this, that as as long as the city was in ruins, it was that city that God had had staked his honour and reputation. Then the name of God was mocked and ridiculed. As one writer quotes, it was an international joke. And the very thought of God's glorious name being mocked and ridiculed was just too much for Nehemiah, and he wept. Nehemiah was jealous for the glory of God, and this is where revival begins. As think, of an illustration, I saw some time back, a football match between, between Tottenham Hotspur and I can't remember the other team and um, there was a cup final and Tottenham Hotspur lost and people, the camera was on, the the fans of Tottenham Hotspur and they were all crying, (laughs) you know, they were in tears because, and you know Tottenham used to sing glory glory Tottenham Hotspur, glory glory Tottenham Hotspur, they used to sing that And, and they were crying and you think, that's crazy. I know somebody in this, in this congregation would cry if Liverpool lost. <laughs> but but that's, that seems ridiculous. But wait a minute. If they can cry for the glory of Tottenham Hotspur being lost, when did you last cry for the glory of God being lost? Isn't it, isn't it devastating? Isn't it devastating for us? Um, so when did he come? and the next question is, what the Lord, what did the Lord do? Listen to verse two and three, "You have forgiven the iniquity of your people, you have covered all their sins. you have, a, you have taken away all your wrath, you have turned from the fearness of your anger. What did he do? The Lord forgave their sins and he set his anger aside his wrath and we can say again this is where revival begins it isn't really with the the recognition that things aren't going well in the church or in the nation and that we need maybe need God to come and help us out of a, a sticky situation Rather, it begins with the recognition that in our sins we have departed from God and that we're under his wrath. And really, our only hope, as Nehemiah recognised, and as the psalmist says here, is this: our only hope is in the goodness and mercy of God. Verse two, forgiving their sins, turning away from your wrath. Now, where and how does God do that? Of course, he does it at the cross. God does that at the cross. He forgives us our sins and he turns away his wrath. He does it in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see the psalmist is looking back to the days of God's favour and saying, that is what we need in the church And in the land. What do we need? The gospel. Let me just pick up this idea of God setting aside his wrath. My favourite verse in the whole Bible is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Here's the picture. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ has a robe of righteousness which is pure white he was without sin all our righteousness is as filthy rags what happened on the cross was that Lord Jesus Christ divested himself of his pure robe of righteousness and transferred it to us and he took our filthy rags and he put them on himself the technical term is imputation isn't it it's wonderful isn't it That's what salvation is and that's what deflected the wrath of God. All those who are recognising that they're sinners and putting their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ can have that, can have the wrath of God deflected. One man has said that the wrath of God is like a waterfall pouring out on us and the Lord Jesus Christ is like a ledge and the water of wrath is deflected onto him. You see? And it doesn't fall on us. Now, let me ask you. Do you know the forgiveness of sins? Do you know peace with God? Have you a hope that will take you through this world into the next? Have you recognised that you're a sinner? Can you say, I can say, it, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. Now can you say that? So the need in the church and the land is the gospel. Secondly, he's looking up and seeking the presence of God. And you notice when he's looking up, he's doing two things. First of all, he's praying. And he's praying not on the basis of anything that he has or he can do, not on the basis of his of any merit that he has, but he's praying on the on the basis of the Lord's unfailing love. Here's the prayer, listen to verses six and eight. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what the Lord will speak. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Let me, let me ask at this point, what, what, what revival is? Um, I've got a working definition here. I know some people here have a much better definition, but this is, this is a working definition. Revival is a sovereign work of God Cannot be organised. Whereby he comes to a church and to a community in gracious yet awesome power to reveal his presence. And in revealing his presence awakens a a sleeping church and resurrects a dead community. So it's really about the presence of God. Do you remember the words of Peter as he preached to the people of Jerusalem outside the temple in Acts 3:19? He says this, "Remember therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord." So this is revival, isn't it? God coming down. God himself coming down and he comes down to manifest his presence in grace and power I, I suppose you, you know that there have been two revivals on the island of Lewis in the outer Hebrides and the first began in 1934 and it was to go on until 1939 the second was to begin in 1949 and was to go on until 1952 Duncan Campbell, who was involved in the, in, in the revival, he says this revival is a community saturated with God. Would that that would be true of Britain. No? A community saturated with God. Mercy drops are falling today, aren't they? That's why you're here. Mercy drops are falling but oh, for a community saturated with God. He says this, he's describing revival as he witnessed in the Western Isles of Scotland between 1949 and 52. In writing of the movement, I would like first to state what I mean by revival as witnessed in the Hebrides. I do not mean a time of religious entertainment with crowds gathering to enjoy an evening of bright gospel singing, I do not mean sensational or spectacular advertising. In a God-sent revival, you do not need to spend money on advertising. I do not mean high-pressured methods to get men to an inquiry room. In revival, every service is an inquiry room. The road and hillside became sacred spots to many when the winds of God i was speaking to a man in Douglas, where i live and um he knew something of the revival and he was gloriously converted on the road amazing conversion i have not got any time to go into it in detail but um so here we here we see the difference between a successful campaign and revival in the former we may see many brought to a saving knowledge of the truth And the church or mission experience a time of quickening. But so far as the town or district is concerned, no real change is visible. The world goes on its way. And he says the dance and the picture shows are still crowded. But in revival, the fear of God lays hold upon the community, moving men and women. What he's saying is this, God had come down amongst them. And when that happens, when God manifests his presence in grace and power, in that type of way, two things happen. First of all, believers are awakened. And we as believers are awakened from our spiritual lethargy it's awful awful words those aren't they spiritual lethargy are you like that pray God that you're not spiritual lethargy believers are awakened from their spiritual lethargy and dullness to become alive to the things of God and he's talking about believers alive to preaching are you alive to preaching tonight <laughs> Alive to prayer and alive to witness and evangelism. So that's the first thing, believers are awakened. Secondly, unbelievers are converted. What has happened in the past in revival is this, that when believers are awakened and and we as believers begin to live openly and consistently and passionately for the Lord, when we do that, the world sees... They cannot but see. And they they want to know what's happening. And and so people are drawn irresistibly to sit under the message of the gospel. And they say things like this. I heard this in the village I live in. They say this. What's this that's happening? What's happening? We want to know. And and unbelievers in a time of revival, find themselves drawn like iron filings to a magnet to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would to God that that happened in Cardiff, in the streets around this church. Would to God that through his Holy Ghost authority and power, coming down in such a way that they would be drawn in to hear the glorious gospel of Christ. And again, so he, when God comes down, believers are awakened, unbelievers are, are converted, and he is listening. I think this, one of, this is one of the key marks of revival. What am I saying? That the psalmists are a hunger for the word of God. Psalm 85a. As 85 verse 8a. Eight, I will hear what the God what God the Lord will speak. And what does God say to the psalmist? I've got no time to expound this, but I'll say it very briefly. He says four things in verses 8 and 9. Have a look at them. 8b, what he promises. 8c, what he demands. 8 and verse 9, what he encourages. And verse 9 again, what he values. And the third thing is, the psalmist is looking forward and anticipating the harvest of God. Here's a man with a vision. Now let me ask, have you got a vision? The Bible says without a vision, you perish. Huh? Have you got a vision? If I ask you right now individually, you got a vision? What is that vision? This man is the man with a vision, and really, he's got a vision for a great harvest. Look at verse ten to thirteen. I've read. I read them again because they're worth reading. This man has got a vision for a great harvest. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him, and shall make his footsteps our footpath. So, what do you do? He's he's thinking of a great ingathering, and in preparation for such an in-gathering, what do you do? Well, you build new barns and there should be new workers. Is that your vision? To have new workers? I picked this up from a commentary and it's worth, worth suggesting. Could it be true that the prevailing attitude in the church, the prevailing spirit in all that it seeks to do, is not so much about anticipating the harvest and therefore preparing for it, but managing the decline and therefore hastening it. That's sad, isn't it? I'll close with with, um, something about Robert Murray McCain. He was a minister in Dundee and he was due to leave his church to visit Israel. And his locum was a man called William Chalmers Burns of Kilsaith. And he wrote to him on March, the 12th. Now, I want you to think about the the spirit of this man. Okay. So he's gone to Israel for a, uh, some months. And this man, William Chalmers Burns, comes to replace him as a locum. You are given an answer to prayer, says McCheney. And... And these gifts are, I believe, always without exception, blessed. I hope you may be a thousand times more blessed among them. That's St. Peter's Congregation in Dundee, isn't it? Then, Then ever I was more blessed among them than ever I was. Perhaps there are many souls that would never have been saved under my ministry who may be touched by yours. And God has taken this method of bringing you into my place. His name is wonderful. Such self effacement simply takes your breath away. Here was a man so humble in himself and and with such a passion for the honour and glory of God that it bothered him not a bit that God might bring revival when he was away. That God's instrument might not be himself, but a young preacher, who in terms of experience was hardly out to be spiritual nappies. And so McCheney left and Burns arrived, and eight months later, McCheney was to write to Burns shortly after arriving back in the country. I cannot lose a moment in writing you a few lines. It was not till we arrived in Hamburg that we heard anything of what was being done in our beloved land for the last five months. Then we heard only a rumour that God had visited his people in love. You may remember that it was with a thankful, joyful spirit that that we read of these things. I cannot rest till I hear from you what has been done among my own dear flock. You remember it was the prayer of my heart when we prayed that you might be a thousandfold more blessed to the people than ever my ministry had been. How how you will gladden my heart if you really tell me it has been so. My poor dear flock, hard-hearted and stiff-necked as they were. If the Lord has already opened their hearts and lives are changed, I will bless God while I, while I have any being. That's an attitude, isn't it? The wonderful attitude of humility. And um, what matters to McChaney was the glory of God. Oh, for such a burden for the souls of men. Or oh, for such a passion for the gospel of Christ. Oh, for such a vision for the kingdom of God. Oh, for such a jealousy for the glory of God. God grant us to be like that. Amen.